David and the Bear, based on a true story. Part 1 David woke early, as was his habit. The morning light, dusty and dappled, cut through the bent and askew blinds of the trailer's window. What was not usual this morning was the nagging worry that sat waiting for him, in the same spot it had perched when he finally fell off to sleep the night before. His time at this farm and its living accommodations, a dusty trailer, was soon coming to a close. The harvest was all but complete, and the clean-up and close of the season would follow quickly. Bill, his current boss and owner of the farm, had made it abundantly clear that he and his wife would be on the road just as soon as they could with the wrap of the season, and was unsettle in his hinting that that would include David's departure as well. In truth, None of this was either a surprise or out of the ordinary. What was unusual, and the root cause of his evening and morning consternation, was where he would go next. He always had a plan for where to point his truck when a gig ran its course, and his utter lack of compass was both unusual and, it turned out, uncomfortable. David rose from his trusty sleeping roll. His bedding was a staple, whether he found himself under a roof atop a mattress or nestled on the forest or desert floor. He rubbed his hands across the top of his bulky but trusty toolbox. Its worn wooden sides and big brass handles were a talisman of preparedness, even if old-timey and unwieldy. He dressed quickly, took appraisal of his meager but essential wares, and left the trailer for the day's work, and he hoped for some much-needed directional clarity. As was often the case, David did not have to wait long for a helpful intervention. Around three o'clock, Bill's wife Maggie called to David. He had a phone call. While he did not receive phone calls regularly, the farm office phone was the contact number he had given to a short list of important people if they needed to contact him. The news of the incoming call made him a little unsettled, but he brushed it off, confident that it was surely due to the end of his time at Bill and Maggie's farm, and set off on a jog towards the neighboring building that housed the office. Hello? David spoke into the receiver, tentatively, but with his characteristic enthusiasm. David, it's Annie Wilson, said the voice on the other end of the line. I'm so glad I caught you. I hope I didn't freak you out. I called your mom and she gave me this number. She says hello, by the way, and told me to tell you to call her and your sister. Her birthday's next week. David could hear his mom's voice loud and clear in Annie's message, and he smiled at the comforting nostalgia of it. He had spoken with his mom just last week, or maybe it was the week before, and his sister's birthday was clearly marked on the pocket calendar he kept on the dash of his truck. Annie continued. Anyway, how are things? She asked rhetorically, connoted by the tone and speed at which she moved right to her next point. The reason I'm calling, kind of out of the blue no less, is that my aunt and uncle are in a bit of a pinch. Well, a huge pinch, actually. And I immediately thought of you as a person who might be able to get them out. I think I've told you about them. They have that orchard up north above Lake County, between Milton and Singer. You remember? She asked, but did not wait for any confirmation of his recollection. Well, my Aunt Becky's mom is not doing too good, and they need to go out and be with her. They had someone set up to take care of the place, the animals, the orchard, the house and such. But wouldn't you know it? That person has a family emergency and canceled. Annie sounded exasperated. My aunt and uncle are looking for a caretaker as soon as possible, and they know it's short notice. But they need someone to take care of the place for the next couple few months while they sort out Becky's mom. 
Annie paused briefly to catch her breath and ready the next part of her pitch. I didn't know what you were up to next, or where you might be heading, but I thought it was sure worth a shot checking in. She paused again and cleared her throat softly. Here's the thing. They can't really pay for the position. She paused once again, then spoke with what David could hear was a bit of practice, if not forced optimism. You have your own room, all the firewood you can burn, and best of all, for you at least, you can take whatever you harvest from the orchard to the market farm in Singer and keep whatever you make, she concluded in a hopeful tone. Pitch delivered. David let this wave of information and opportunity settle in. He was about to ask Annie if it was okay if he thought on it for a bit. When that morning's about of worry popped back into his mind, he didn't have anything better to do. Heck, he didn't have anything else to do. It would only be a few months at most, which would give him plenty of time to figure out what to do next. Not to mention, the fall and early winter were always kind of a downtime. He also quickly recounted the last time he was up around Lake County and how good the fishing was. And just like that, with the calculation of a window of good fishing and nothing much better to do, he made up his mind. Annie, he said, purposely suspending the pause for dramatic effect. That sounds just great, he said with exuberance. I just happen to have an opening in my otherwise busy schedule. I'd love to get your aunt and uncle out of a pinch, as it were. I need to check in with Bill, see how soon I can get out of here, but I'm sure I can be on the road in the next week or so. And up to their house three days later, tops. David said into the receiver with the added vigor of someone who knew he saved the day. He told Annie he would talk to Bill and would call her aunt and uncle the following day to work out the details. They exchanged the pleasantries and updates that had been leapfrogged at the front end of the call before David encouraged Annie to pay him a visit while he was watching the place and do some fishing. Then he said goodbye. And just like that, his next destination was off the table and that nagging worry could be swept right under the dusty trailer carpet. He took a deep breath, a warm satisfaction, settled, settling in where that darn worry had been taking up space that morning. Things just worked themselves out. As expected, Bill was very understanding, if not relieved, and told David that he was free to go whenever he was ready to hit the road. That very afternoon, he gave David a little bonus for a season's work, a warm and hearty handshake, and an invitation to return for future seasons, if the wind brings you back this way, Bill said with a smile. The bonus was a most welcome surprise, as David had spent the bulk of his seasonal savings, which just happened to be his total savings, on a new transmission first truck just a couple weeks earlier. He felt like he'd had enough to get up to Lake County before the bonus, but now he was sure of it, and would even have a little extra for some new tackle, and maybe an extra layer or two for the cooler temperatures up north. He wrapped up his projects, packed up his truck, and was on the road before the end of the week. Part 2 David took the scenic route north to Lake County, as was his preferred approach. It would take a bit longer, but barring any mishaps, he would still arrive at Annie's aunt and uncle's earlier than expected. The drive was pleasant, and David couldn't help but pull over twice to fish a section of river that was just too tempting to drive past. While only caught a couple small river trout, it was just the brief distraction he needed to get a few more miles up the road. David pulled into the town of Singer around 10 o'clock Sunday morning. Like most towns in the area, there wasn't much to it. Main Street was the main street, with a half a dozen lesser streets branching off from its center. The town had the feel 
that are probably bustled with tourists and town folk alike in the summer months, but quieted quickly with fall's approach and the chilling of the air. David debated pulling in at Ray's grocery mart, but decided perhaps he'd get a sense of what his larder might or might not be the farm before he loaded up. Becky and Mark's farm was about six miles out of town, almost exactly halfway to Milton, the next small town on the map. Another town, he was fairly sure, would not offer much more than that of Singer. David's directions told him to take a left on Willow Street, which was well marked and even had a turning lane, drive a mile, cross the bridge over Lester Creek, and look for the farm's driveway, the third on the right. David was excited to put eyes on the creek, obviously his closest opportunity for getting some line wet. He drove slowly over the bridge and craned his neck to get a look up and down the stream. He was pleased to see that there was a fair bit of running water, seemingly several feet deep in both directions, but the banks were dense with brush and bramble. He made a mental note about the approach and kept his eyes peeled for the third driveway. The driveway, as is the case with most farms, was really a dirt road that ran about a third of a mile back. There was a two-strand barbed wire fence that ran the bulk of the right side with a mixture of pasture and scrub trees throughout. The barbed wire stopped at what was clearly the start of the orchard and rose to six-foot wooden posts with four strands of wire and the familiar yellow ribbed plastic junctions of an electric fence atop. A hundred yards further, he came around a bend and could see the farmhouse tucked into the trees ahead. David parked, stretched his back, and patted the hood of his truck in a ceremonial gesture of gratitude for another safe arrival. Moments later, both Becky and Mark came out the front door. Greetings and introductions were warm on both sides, and they welcomed David gratefully for arriving as soon as he had. They told David they had coffee and pastries waiting for him, and David replied quite honestly that that was great news because he was starving, and they made their way into the house. The first thing David spied was the pack bags on the edge of the entry hall. Becky saw him notice and spoke. If you're okay with it, we were really hoping to get on the road this afternoon. My mom isn't doing great. It'd be wonderful if we get to her place this evening, she said. We wouldn't have to leave until three or four, which should give us plenty of time to get you up to speed and comfortable, she added a bit nervously. David wasn't worried and understood their desire to get to her mom as soon as possible. I'm sure that will be plenty of time. Annie already told me quite a bit. All I really need to know is where everything goes, David said with a reassuring smile. Becky was obviously relieved and squeezed the top of David's arm, grateful for his understanding. The three made their way into the kitchen to a mountainous stack of pastries and the smell of hot coffee in the pot. David and Mark sat at the kitchen table, plated some pastry, and started going through the well-organized stack of papers and directions they had prepared while Becky poured the coffee. It was really all pretty straightforward, and Becky and Mark had done an excellent job preparing for their departure. There were directions for all the animals, descriptions for the power and the water, a thorough list of local contacts if David needed anything, as well as a half dozen different ways they could be contacted if anything came up or he had any questions. There was even a detailed and carefully rendered map of the property with colored lines for fences and a compass rose neatly drawn in the corner. The three walked the property, covering the house, the barn, the apartment attached to the side of the barn where David would be staying. It abutted the western edge of the orchard. The orchard was clearly the pride of the property, and while fruit trees were by no means David's specialty, he was quite sure it was Becky and Mark's. The trees were beautifully maintained, pruned consistently and evenly across the expanse of the orchard. 
The pasture was mowed, but not too low, given the impression that the trees were living in it, not on it. David noted every shade of green, and he could tell immediately that it was a thoughtful mix of grasses and forbs and legumes, and the fruit. Heavens to Betsy. The trees were loaded, but perfectly so. This is the hardest part about leaving, Mark said. Bang up fruit year. This orchard usually delivers, but we haven't seen it like this in maybe the last ten. He spoke with a mix of pride and sadness for having to leave it. You can obviously harvest whatever you like. There's plenty, Becky said with a laugh. And I know Annie told you about it, and we left more details on the kitchen table, but you're welcome to bring whatever you want to harvest to the Saturday market in Singer. There's a midweek market in Milton, but it's pretty sleepy this time of year. Of course, you can decide, Becky said deferentially. Mark spoke up. The varieties are labeled on the map. They've largely been planted in blocks of three or four, but some of our favorites have more, and then there are some random ones out there that we put in when the trees were damaged or bust, Mark said with an expansive wave of his hand. The far northwest corner trees are mostly cider apples. Our neighbor Charlie takes most of those and presses them. We get a bunch of cider out of the deal, and the timing might be just right for you to get a couple jugs yourself, Mark winked, indicating a playful sweetening of the deal. This time of year, there really isn't much else to do but pick and enjoy, Mark concluded. All three stood for a few moments reverently looking across the orchard, absorbed in their individual thoughts. Mark broke the silence with an outstretched arm and a shall we, and they made their way back towards the house. Well, what do you think? Becky asked. David could tell she was anxious. A combination of leaving the farm to a stranger's care and surely the unknowns of the close of the day and the responsibility and challenges therein. She picked at the sleeve of her sweater and looked around as if trying to remember an item or detail she had forgotten. Mark interjected, as if he had remembered for her. Oh, let me show you what we have in the way of market supplies. We've not gone ourselves in a couple years, so you have to pick through it, he said to David. Let's go take a look, and he gestured for David to follow him out to the garage. The garage was not so much of a garage, as there was no way a vehicle of any size would have any chance of finding a parking spot. It was a combination of storage and workshop, chaos and order. David was sure he'd found his favorite room of the tour, it was a mixture of all of his favorite things. He asked Mark, hopefully, you mind if I use some of these tools? Keeping his question vague, a bit on purpose. Mark didn't answer immediately, seemingly doing some character calculations in his head. Well, you look like you know around a table saw. He showed David a market pile, a couple of tables, an assortment of crates and boxes, what looked like a sawdusty tote full of tablecloths. Like I said, we haven't used this stuff in a while. You can decide what will work best. Mark turned to walk back to the house and stopped just briefly to look around as he has done in the orchard. David found Mark's obviously farmerly connection to all these spaces to be very endearing. He was sure that he would very much enjoy Mark's company and hoped they'd get to share a bit of time when he returned. When Mark opened the garage door into the house, a gust of wind rushed them both. The front door was still open, as was the kitchen door, and either the addition of the open garage door or the coincidence of their entry created an audible whoop in the hallway. Both David and Mark's hair was must as the front door slammed shut. And in that very same moment, the map of the orchard, which was the only paper on the kitchen table that wasn't clipped or stapled to another page, took flight. In a randomly graceful swirl, it leapt from the table, floated momentarily, and impossibly inserted itself into the minuscule crack between the cupboard and the wall. It was truly a tragedy that no one was there to witness this aerial grace, 
and like an Olympic diver, it perfectly entered the minuscule space without so much as a splash, and for all intents and purposes, it was gone forever. Becky bounded into the hallway seconds later. What was that? she asked, clearly frazzled. Both Mark and David shrugged and laughed. Must be a sign, Mark offered. Time to be on our way. And with all that, they laughed a bit, but it had done the trick, and the momentum shifted towards Mark and Becky getting on the road. David helped them load the last of their bags into the truck. David had not noticed that it had been mostly packed before he had even arrived, and the bags in the hallway, only the final pieces of their travel wares. When the last bag had been stowed, Mark shook David's hand, and Becky gave him a big hug. Both reiterated their thanks for the umpteenth time, and they got in the truck. Mark rolled down his window and spoke. David, I meant to tell you this after the garage, but that wind blew it right out of my mind. I'm glad I remembered. I wanted to tell you to keep in mind that this is apple country. When you go to the market, you won't be the only one selling the fruit. Just keep your expectations, well, reasonable, I guess is all I wanted to say. And thanks again. He just couldn't resist one more acknowledgement of appreciation. And with that, the truck fired up, rounded the corner of the orchard, down the same two-strand fence David had navigated for the first time just several hours ago, and with a trail of dust and rumble, David was on his own. Part 3 David spent the first afternoon unpacking his things and readying his room for the next couple months. Unfortunately, this only took about an hour, so he still had several hours of daylight that needed filling. His farm chores didn't start until tomorrow, as Mark and Becky had made everything ready for his arrival. He decided a deeper explorer of at least the orchard would be a good use of his sunlit hours. The orchard covered just over two acres, but its lush density made it feel even grander. In keeping with his initial observations, the orchard was meticulously kept. The trees were beautifully pruned and shaped and full of fruit. The verdant orchard floor was lush, a universe unto itself, teeming with life and color. David drifted, trying to see if he could notice when a block changed to a different variety or if one of Mark's random trees snuck into the mix. Eventually, David wandered all the way to the back edge of the orchard which was also the back edge of the property. At the fence line, there was a bit of a buffer, another meticulously mowed strip before the forest started in earnest. And once it started, it sure didn't look like it stopped anytime soon. David would have to spend some time with a map to really get a sense of it. But Becky had mentioned it was over 10 miles before he hit another dirt road, all public land. If the fishing failed to deliver, there would be no shortage of exploration possibilities. David followed the fence line back towards the driveway, and back around to the house. As soon as he saw his truck, his belly growled, alerting him that his midday pastries were all used up. Time to check the pantry and see what we got, David said, and made his way back into the house. Alas, the pantry was not the honeypot he was hoping for. There was a lot of food, for sure. Mark and Becky were obviously excellent gardeners and prodigious canners, as there was a rainbow of well-labeled jars lining the shelves. If David had been craving dilly beans or stewed tomatoes, he would have hit the jackpot. He certainly would never starve here, but none of this was particularly useful for his immediate hunger. He made his way into the kitchen to check the fridge. While the door was pretty well stocked with condiments, the rest of the fridge felt pretty lonely, more white light and glass shelves visible than any tasty treats. David grabbed a loaf of bread and tossed it on the kitchen counter. Well, I guess I'll be visiting Ray's sooner than later, 
David said as he set off to find a toaster. The next day, David rose early and set out on his chore list. As was his practice at any new place or job, the first day of work, he must be meticulous. His perennial thinking was between the first pass and a bit of extra attention to detail. He would know the duration of every task. He got going just after seven, checking everything off the list and making notes for himself in the margin as he went. He was very surprised to find his final check being made just after 10 o'clock. He looked across the list to see if other days would be heavier loads or if he had missed anything, but he'd done it all. If anything, many days would be lighter, particularly as days got cooler and shorter. Well, time is not something I'll run short on, David thought to himself. David contacted the market, received all the necessary information, and committed to being at the next market himself, the approaching Saturday. With the formalities accounted for, he set upon the pile of market supplies. First, he pulled out a couple of folding tables and a large box of tablecloths. The tablecloths would at least need a proper airing out, if not a good wash, as they were all dusty and had clearly been in the box for quite some time. Next, he had to decide how he'd display his harvest. Not exactly sure yet what that would entail, but it had to look inviting to get people to the table. He decided on the wooden crates over the neat and stackable plastic ones. The wooden ones would need some work and take longer to clean up, but he liked the look of them, and he had the time, so why not? He brought the crates, probably more than he was likely to use, out behind the house. He hung a line and strung the tablecloth he was hoping to use out across it. He pulled a couple sawhorses from the garage, threw a half sheet of plywood across the top, and readied a crate rehab station. He grabbed his radio from his apartment, found a likable enough station on the FM dial, and it had his afternoon carved out in front of him. The rest of the week was pretty uneventful. David did his chores in the morning, not terribly concerned about time, and was largely done before midday. On Wednesday, he even got out to the creek for the first time to test the water. While no fish were caught, he was pleased to discover that he could easily negotiate the creek from the water and felt very optimistic that there were fish in there somewhere. He'd just need to put in the time in order to find them. On Friday, he did his chores with a bit more attention to the clock, as he did on the prior days. He wasn't sure what he was going to harvest for tomorrow's market, but he wanted to leave plenty of time to get it all done. He had originally hoped there would be still a few things in the garden that he could bring to the market to supplement his orchard hall. But as the pantry should have indicated, Mark and Becky had been fastidious in their seasonal preservations. David probably could have harvested a few bunches of kale, or maybe even a straggler or two heads of cabbage. But he was going to need to eat as well, and if he sold those, he'd just need to buy the likes of it back at the store in the coming weeks. There were also potatoes and squash in the garage, but that felt like that was cheating at best and stealing at worst, and he quickly discounted that option as well. Well, that left the bounty of the orchard. Well then, apples it shall be, David said to himself, with a sigh that challenged his confidence. Now that time it was time to harvest, the orchard seemed startlingly vast, larger and more unknown than it had during all of his early explorations. Where would he even start? In most ways, the trees all look the same. The fruit had some variations in color and shape, but these were not tomatoes, a plant he was far more familiar with, and one where color was a much better indicator of ripe and ready. Just then it occurred to him, the map. At least he would know what he was looking at, or could sort the apples appropriately. He set on a jog back towards the house and the instruction-laden kitchen table. David had not looked at or for the map since his first morning with Mark and Becky. 
In fact, he had barely revisited the kitchen table all week, as he had made his own notes and was a quick study of his chore routine. He sorted through the pages and folders. No map. Shirley was just stuck in one of the many stapled or clip stacks and meticulously went through every one of them. Still no map. David spent the better part of a half an hour going through all the pages. Well, hell, he thought to himself. That nervousness that he felt when apples would be his exclusive crop reared up again and shifted to a general uneasiness. David stood in the kitchen a bit longer, willing the map to appear among the pages. Well, hell, he said again, spun, and made his way back to the orchard. With nothing but the orchard in front of him, David walked among the trees. He knew the trees in the corner behind the barn were for cider, so at least it ruled those out. He pulled an apple off the first block of similar trees he came to. The fruit in his hand was red on the shoulder and slightly chalky on the outside. He took a bite. Before his teeth had sunk far enough to take off a chunk, the tart hit him. It was acidic and sharp. He couldn't decide whether to pry his teeth out or finish the bite and spit the piece to the ground. He opted for the later, his mouth strangely dry from its brief interaction with the fruit. And as if a new mantra was taking shape, David uttered, well, hell. The next group of trees was a better experience, and David's spirits got a needed bump. The apple David carefully selected and picked didn't suck the moisture from his mouth. It was crisp, still a bit astringent, but definitely tasted like an apple. There were four other trees that appeared to be in this block, which made David feel like this variety must be a winner. He dropped a couple of crates between the stand and continued his search. His exploration was largely puckering, with more chunks spat than chewed. He managed to find two more blocks that he thought were harvestable, and decided three varieties, even if he had no idea what they were, would have to do for his first visit to the market. Before a single apple had made it to the crate, David looked at his watch. His search had taken far longer than he had expected, and now he'd need to hurry to pick the six crates worth of fruit he had hoped to bring with him in the morning. He didn't say it aloud, but his afternoon's mantra was on the tip of his tired tongue. David's first day at the market was an unmitigated disaster. He arrived back at the farm just after four o'clock, exhausted, defeated, and generally bummed out. The bed of his truck contained most of the fruit that he had loaded that morning. Just the thought of having to deal with it was almost too much to handle. In all of his years of selling food at farmer's markets, he had never had such a bad day. The few apples he did sell felt like charity, or even worse, pity. Nice, older women from town telling him that maybe they could make a pie and then buying far fewer apples than a pie would take to bake. He had provided samples of his apples, sliced and skewered with toothpicks, dreading the question that almost invariably came next. What variety are these? He considered a wild story as to why he didn't know, but he settled upon apology and the excuse that he left the list back at the farm, faking a smile and shrugging his shoulders. In this small town, People were intimately familiar with the apple. They were polite and even nice about his lack of crucial information, but they sure as heck weren't going to buy anything. And so the hours ticked slowly by, and less than three of the 55 pounds of apples he had brought to sell left the table. As a market vendor, it had cost David $40 to participate. This was also a first-time special, and so it would cost him 50 for any future markets he would attend, which, given his current feelings, was definitely up for debate. He had also gassed up the truck, which in fairness would have needed to be done with or without the market, but it still felt like another $20 bruise. At the end of the market, 
He had seen the manager heading his way, likely for a friendly. How did you do? But upon seeing all the apples still on his table, she made a convenient left turn to a cheese vendor, a couple tents down. David couldn't blame her. He wanted nothing less to have to respond to the question, regardless of standard market conventions and general politeness. David's expectations for financial gain for the market were meager, but the reality of the situation was a blow. He had hoped to go shopping at Ray's after the market and stock up on some favorite staples. This was not to be. Anyway, by the time he got everything loaded and his truck back on the road, he just wanted to get back to the farm and be alone. For the first time in a very long time, David thought to himself, what did I get myself into? David did not rise the next, early the next morning. To be exact, he still woke early, but lingered in bed far later than was his norm. He wasn't thinking about anything in particular, but the general theme of his pondering was, what's next? This question flitted between the specifics of the day to his subsequent gig, to something that resembled the general meaning of life. His thoughts jumbled together and seemed to jostle time itself, and it wasn't until almost nine before he got out of bed and on with the day. David did his chores, efficiently but without his usual vigor. He checked things off the list but without any joy. Questions that rarely nuisanced David pinballed around his head. Was bouncing farm to farm a path or the total lack of one? If this wasn't a path, where was it taking him? He decided a bit of fishing was his best bet to clear his head and raise his spirits. He did have better luck than his last visit to the creek, but his heart wasn't really in it, and he quit after just a couple of hours, and he made his way back to the farm. Part 4 The next morning, a strange sound shook David from his slumber. He could not identify the sound, but his instincts told him it was something that needed investigating. He popped out of his bedroll and dressed quickly. The sound had come from the back of the orchard, and as soon as he stepped out his door, he heard another, different but substantial, and definitely coming from the back of the orchard. Having no idea about the source of the commotion, he decided to approach cautiously. The air was fresh and felt cooler than it had since he had arrived. He reached for the knit hat from his back pocket and pulled it on, covering his ears. David made his way over to the cider block. As he approached, it would give him the widest view. When he got to the far side of the block, he took to a knee and became as still as possible. At this point, he even closed his eyes, carefully listening for an indication of where he might go next. After a couple minutes, he heard another sound. Maybe it was a branch being pulled and then released right before it would have snapped. The branches returned, making a leafy reverberation. David moved cautiously in the direction of the sound, a few trees at a time. His stealthy approach was slow, and probably five minutes had passed before he had moved more than 50 feet. He had just ducked under a block of particularly fruit-laden trees when he saw it. He froze in his tracks. He took a deep breath and made himself small against the base of the tree. A bear. While it did not appear to have seen David, its face was pointing right at him. Its large, ursine head was black, with only its muzzle a lighter shade of brown, even golden near its eyes. It bobbed its head and nose in the air before moving slightly to the left and continuing its perusal of the orchard. The body, David guessed, was at least 500 pounds, and it swayed from side to side as it lumbered along. It appeared to be looking for something, but not sure where to find it. As David watched, it headed towards another block of trees. 
After a bit more head bobbing, it reared up, not exactly standing, but definitely on its back legs, and grabbed a branch full of fruit. It stripped a couple of apples from the branch, and there it was, the familiar sound of the branch snapping back to its place in the tree. The bear dipped its head into the grass and sampled the apples that it had freed from the branch. One, two, maybe a third? It raised its head and returned to its bobbing patrol. It moved to several more trees and repeated the process. Stand, strip, and sample. David was mesmerized. He had seen bears before, but never this close, this private. And while he was nervous, he felt like his position was far enough to continue his observation safely. Plus, if he moved now, the bear would definitely notice him, and that would be a totally different situation. It was at the fourth block of trees that the bear finally seemed to find what it was looking for. It repeated its sampling protocol, stripping a few fruits and eating off the orchard floor. This time, however, after gobbling the first fruit, it ate all the rest hungrily. The bear then stood right back up and grabbed another branch and a third after that, substantially littering the ground with fruit. It spent the next several minutes head down, barely looking up from its meal. When it was finished, it moved back towards the rear of the orchard, from where it had apparently entered earlier. It only stopped at one more tree to sample on its way out, and seemingly dissatisfied with fallen fruit, continued on its way. David stayed very still at the base of the tree for several more minutes. He was both amazed and confused. What had he just seen? He pulled the wool head off his head, shoved it back into his pocket, and scratched his head. When he was quite sure the bear had gone, he made his way over to the tree where the bear had found its prize. The grass all around the tree was matted and wet from the bear's feast. There was not a single apple on the ground. David knew that he must have knocked several dozen off the branches. He stood up on his toes and pulled an apple from the tree. It was a lovely fruit, mostly red with some green hue near the stem. David thought to himself, what the heck? He shrugged his shoulders and took a bite. It was delicious, crisp and sweet with just the right amount of acid. It tasted like everything an apple should be. He grabbed another, and it might even be better than the first. Well, I'll be, David said aloud, tussling his hair again in a pleasant mix of confusion and wonder. All right, bear, I see what you did there. David stripped the t-shirt he was wearing under his heavy flannel off and tied it to the tree. He was pretty sure he would remember which tree, but they all looked pretty much the same, and he sure wasn't going to risk not being able to find it again. David made his way to the back of the orchard, from whence the bear had come and gone. He easily found where it had made its way through the fence. While there was a broken post, he wasn't sure that the bear was responsible, and the rest of the opening looked like it had been rearranged somehow carefully, as though the bear had tried to do as little damage as it could to get its hulking mass from one side to the other. David repaired the section, but not too much. He'd hoped he'd see that bear again. He didn't have to wait long. The very next morning, he was up early and all ears for any sounds coming from the orchard. His impatience got the better of him, and he made his way into the orchard. He had barely got to the third row of trees when he heard the telltale sound of bending branches. David scurried to the next line of trees as he positioned himself to observe. The bear was stripping fruit from a branch, just as it had done the day before. David wasn't sure if this was the first tree it had visited that morning, but it seemed to have hit the jackpot as it gobbled up the fruit off the orchard floor. In fact, it seemed so pleased with the tree in question that it grabbed another branch and emptied it into the grass, devouring those apples with the same voraciousness. When it was seemingly through with the second branch bounty, it returned to its saunter and sampling of the other trees. 
David wondered to himself, why, if the bear had found a tree it liked, it didn't stick around and eat its fill? He'd have to file that away for a thorough contemplation later on. Right now, the bear was on the move. After sampling several trees, it found another to its liking and devoured a loaded branch with a fruit out on the grass. Satisfied, the bear raised its great brown head and sniffed the morning air, left, right, and left again. Content with its olfactory findings, the bear pointed itself towards the rear of the orchard and made its exit. David quickly made his way to the bear's feasting and marked them with strips of cloth he had put in his pocket the day before for just such a purpose. As he was closer to the second tree, he tried those apples first. Like his experience yesterday, the apples were delicious, perfectly ripe and bursting with flavor. He looked over the tree and had a hard time calculating the sheer volume of deliciousness that hung from its branches. David then made his way to the other tree, where the bear had double-dipped. He pulled an apple from the tree and looked it over. It was a beautiful fruit, dark red and shaped like it popped off the pages of a storybook. He took a bite, and he couldn't help but let out an ecstatic moan. It was glorious. It might have been the best thing he'd ever eaten. But before he'd even finished the first, he had grabbed a second and took a bite, sure that they couldn't all be so good. They were. More groans. It was everything he could do not to eat the corn all. He finished the first, the second, and a third in short order. The flavor filled his head. The speed at which he had ate the apples seemed to have left a mist, one that enveloped his senses. He looked over the tree and its fruit in awe. Just maybe he had stumbled on a miracle. David marked the tree with another one of the cloth strips in his pocket and stuffed three more apples for the walk back to the house. David decided not to wait until Friday to harvest these apples. He just couldn't risk not bringing them to market. He wasn't sure what would happen to the apples if he left them on the tree for another couple days. But they were so good, he couldn't help but feel concerned that his prize would simply disappear. That afternoon, he harvested five bushels from the tree. He hardly needed to mount the orchard ladder during his harvest and made barely a dent in the fruit-laden tree. The bear did not come back the next day, but he was there on Friday morning. David was in the middle of rushing through his farm chores when he heard the telltale sound of his ursine visitor. He hurriedly finished what he was doing and made his way to his observation point in the orchard. He watched the bear for the better part of an hour. After it departed, he marked and sampled the trees the bear had feasted upon. None of the apples were quite as divine as the one he had two days before, but they were all delicious, and the variations in flavor and color would make for an excellent display at the market the next day. Part 5 David still didn't know what varieties he was picking, and he knew that regardless of how delicious they might be, his market shoppers were apple folk, and they would want to know. He knew he couldn't just make the varieties up, so he'd have to come up with another idea. He decided right away that the bear had brought him this far and might as well take him across the finish line. David finished the chores before he stole away to watch the bear that morning. He then went back to the orchard and harvested the rest of the apples he intended to bring to the market the next day. He knew it was risky, particularly since he had brought much of his harvest home the week before, but he harvested twice as much as the past week, feeling confident these apples would sell themselves. He set to gathering all the supplies he would need to transform his market stall. He worked through the afternoon and into the night. The scroll saw carved through sheets of plywood. Two by fours tied the cut sheets together. The scrap wood creation grew until it was a sturdy and stable six feet. When David was happy with the shape, he moved into paint. David was worried that the paint wouldn't dry before morning, so he moved his creation into a tarp kitchen 
where he could set up a heater and a fan to help it along. Two hours later, David looked upon his creation, and if his hands weren't covered in brown and red paint, he would have literally patted himself on the back. The next day, he woke early, knowing that it would take both longer to load his truck, and he would need all the prep time he could get to set up his stall. He arrived at the market the first minute vendors were allowed to set up. As he unloaded his truck and began to set up, he could feel the curious eyes of the other vendors upon him. There were three minutes left before the market bell rang. David was content with the state of his stall. The large chalkboard sign in the front of the booth read, Bear's Choice, followed by the slogan, Nature Knows Best. Next to the sign and its well-crafted chalk letters towered yesterday's creation, a six-foot-tall bear holding an oversized apple. There was no mistaking what it was, and it rode the fine line between realistic and cartoonish, imposing because of its size and singularity in the market, but also comforting and familiar. Not by intention, it was reminiscent of Smokey the Bear, without the trademark dungarees and flat ranger's hat. Like Smokey, the bear seemed to smile through his eyes, and David had done an excellent job making them big and bright. The apple, while giant compared to a real apple, seemed somehow appropriate perched on the bear's upturned paw. Its bright red almost made it shine against the dark painted fur of the rest of the bear. David stood next to his created mascot with a tray full of sliced apples. He decided to go with the miracle apple right out of the gate, both because it was so darn good, but also because he had brought more of those than any other variety. His first potential customer walked up right away. What do we have here, young man? asked an older fellow, shopping with his wife. Well, sir, I believe these are the finest apples that nature sees fit to offer, David said with the flourish of a roadside showman. You see, our farm has in its service a most particular bear, a bear that is a striking resemblance to the likeness of this big critter standing by my side. With his free hand, David made a playful signal to his plywood compatriot. See, the bear picks the best apples in the orchard, and I bring them to you good folks here at the market. People appeared steadily throughout the day. Many wanted to take a picture with the bear, or David and the bear. Each invariably bought some apples, more if they had tried a sample. Gimmick or not, the bear was just enough of a distraction that only a couple people asked about the varieties. David had sold every last one of his apples with an hour left in the market, and just stood beside his empty crates and smiled when people asked if they could have a photo with the bear. Be my guest, he would say. Thanks for coming out. I hope to see you next week. The next three weeks followed similarly. While well, none of the apples David picked were quite as magical as those when he first followed the bear, they were all excellent and sold readily. David brought more apples each time, hoping to do better, but not wanting to be greedy, and definitely not wanting to bring any apples back to the farm. Each week, he sold the last apple before the closing bell rang, and each week, nearly everyone who visited his stand snapped a photo with the bear. One of those photos even made it on the front page of the local paper. While they didn't interview David or tell the story of the bear, the article was about local color and seasonal charm of the area, and David was pleased that he could add to the equation. By the close of the market, David had three very successful weeks, and what was by no means a financial windfall, he had gratefully replaced the comfortable buffer of his slightly padded wallet. Part 6 during this time, the weather had shifted, growing a bit colder, particularly at night. The colder temps had lightened David's list of chores, and with the market complete, he no longer needed time for harvesting apples. 
except for those that he ate, or juiced, or used for pies. So many pies. David had never eaten more apples in his life, and couldn't believe that he had not grown tired of them. But he hadn't. They remained a pleasure to the last. On the Wednesday of the week after the market had closed, the wind had picked up, and there was a light rain that flurried on and off. David decided to go into town, maybe get a lunch at the diner. But there was something that had been itching the back of his mind that he needed to explore at the library. On the way into town, the itch in his mind proved to be louder than the hunger rumble in his belly, and he pointed the truck straight to the library. The whole time David had spent with the bear, he had wondered why the bear ate as it did, largely sampling, eating a branchful of apples from one tree, occasionally a couple branchfuls, before moving on to the next. The pattern was so regular and constant that by even the second week, David could almost predict when the bear would saunter to the next tree and give it a try. David sat down at one of the public computers near the reference desk. He lightly chewed on the pencil he had brought with his notebook for important ponderings. A question was written at the top of the page, simple and hastily scrawled. Why doesn't the bear eat all the apples? The rest of the page was wide open and begging for a response. David had felt like he'd got to know the bear a bit during their time together. He had very much enjoyed their daily interaction. He wasn't sure if the bear knew it was being watched and didn't care, or perhaps enjoyed the company, even if it was from afar. As the bear was the only way David was likely to make another dime at the market, he was cautious not to disturb it during or after its almost daily perusal of the orchard. And like so many experiences in nature, the best way to be was to hardly be there at all. And so he and the bear had spent their days together, but apart. It didn't take long for David to find exactly what he was looking for. Only a couple of variations on his initial search yielded fruit, as it were. It turned out he was not the first person to wonder about this. Not really a surprise. In fact, there was a substantial body of research connected to this question, and even a mathematical approach he discovered called the marginal value theorem, which described the way animals forage. While David had not done any math while he watched the bear go about its business, he had intrinsically understood the predictability of it and couldn't help but smile to himself that there were actual mathematical models to tell the tale. These foraging models, as described in the article David read, essentially said that there's a cost-benefit ratio intrinsic to the way a given animal will feed in a certain area. The ratio looks at how long said animal will stay, or in David's experience, how long it lingered or how many apples it would take from any one tree, as opposed to how hard it was to get to the next food source, either in difficulty or distance. In David and the Bear's case, the orchard was full of opportunity. The next tree, while potentially not as good as the last, was literally 10 feet in every direction. According to these optimal foraging models, because the next tree, and more importantly its apples, was very close, there would be little to no reason not to keep moving, rather best to keep sampling. Amazing, David whispered softly. This thought exercise reminded him of something he had read about animals that graze the African savanna, how without threat or peril, they will not graze any grassland down to the dirt, but eat what they need and move on. Good for the animal, good for the grass. Amazing, David said more robustly this time, and looked around momentarily, forgetting he was at the library. The librarian at the reference desk gave him a subtle smile as he gestured an apology. David decided he did not need to dig too deep into the mathematics of his current research content that he had thoroughly answered his question. He jotted down some thoughts in his notebook, tying some ideas together, and feeling like he knew the bear even better. 
even though he, what he had witnessed is just what bears do. Amazing, he thought to himself again. Just as he finished up writing down his thoughts, he saw that he had new emails, three in fact. The newness of them was debatable, as he has not checked his email in several days, but they were new to him. The first was from Becky and Mark. They were just checking in, as they had done weekly since they had left. They were not looking for news from the farm, more updating David as to the situation with Becky's mom. They hoped they could be there for another few weeks, which was in keeping with the amount of time they had discussed originally. David shot back a quick note that was nearly identical to the rest of the responses he had sent. All was well. Take all the time they needed. Thanks for the update. Send. The second email was from Annie. She had just emailed the day before wondering if David was up for a visitor. She had a week off from work and had an itch to get on the road. She would be up at the farm the following Monday if it worked for him. She mentioned that if it was too cold for fishing, they could still get in a few hikes. David immediately thought of the forest behind the orchard that he had yet to explore and was doubly excited about her visit. He couldn't wait to tell her about the bear. Maybe he'd wait until they got back from their hike, he thought to himself. He wrote her back and told her he would love a visitor and the following week worked great. He also mentioned it was never too cold for fishing, only half joking. The final email was from Pete and Lacey Stewart at Three Crows Farm. David had worked for them three springs back. They were lovely people and had a beautiful piece of ground. His head filled with memories of his time at Three Crows, and he needed to pull himself out as a daydream to read the content of the email. Turns out they had recently installed two new greenhouses and were looking for some assistance and advice getting them up and running. They were wondering if he was interested in the position. It could be a short stay if he had other things going, just pointing them and a couple of employees in the right direction, or longer if he could stick around and help them get things going. They said they'd like to get things rolling just after the first of the year if he was available. And just like that, he had the next direction to point his truck. He wrote back that it just so happened that he had an opening in his otherwise busy schedule, and he was most interested. He needed to finish up what he was doing in Lake County, but would have no problem being at Three Crows just after the first of the year. He told them he'd be in touch shortly to work out the details, but he was very much looking forward to spending some time with them again. Sent. David sat back in the hard wooden chair and stared at the now blank screen. Well, that was a productive session, he thought to himself. He had a couple more weeks on his hand at Becky and Mark's farm. Annie was coming for a visit, and that would surely be good for some laughs. And he would be heading to Three Crows after that to bring a couple new greenhouses to life. Amazing, he said as aloud, this time softer, more aware of his surroundings. Before he left the computer in the library, he thought of the bear. In the dark of the computer screen, he could perfectly visualize how it sauntered through the orchard, the color of its head and face. He thought about how the bear knew when it was time to move on, even if it really didn't know what was next. Even when the apples were the best ever, it was okay, because there were so many trees in the orchard. In that moment, David felt even closer to the bear than he had when he was 30 feet away, hiding behind a tree. That's just how it works. You don't have to be a mathematician to know that, he said, less concerned about his ballroom. Right then, his stomach let loose a long, suppressed growl. Whoa, buddy, he said as he patted his belly. Okay, I hear you. And with that, he picked up his things, pushed in his chair, and made his way down the street to the diner. The end.